President John F. Kennedy was fatally shot on November 22, 1963, as his open-top limousine glided through Dallas's Dealey Plaza. Within hours, Dallas police arrested and charged a young New Orleans native, Lee Harvey Oswald, who worked in a building overlooking the plaza, situated just where Kennedy's car had to negotiate a sharp turn. Eyewitness accounts differed about the origin and number of shots, but a substantial majority of onlookers, including both civilians and law enforcement, believed initially the shots had come from in front of the vehicle, not the rear, the site of the Texas School Book Depository building where Oswald worked at the time Kennedy was struck. By the next day, authorities were actively dispelling speculation about multiple shooters, adamantly insisting that they had the lone wolf culprit. Oswald emphatically denied having shot anyone, but before he could expound on his innocence, he was murdered on November 24th while in Dallas police custody by nightclub owner Jack Ruby, who maintained long-standing friendships with both Dallas police and organized crime. Despite compelling reasons to dig further, the lone wolf narrative almost immediately became the official story, reinforced by the September 1964 Warren Commission report and thereafter proclaimed true by the national media. This simplistic account of what happened that awful day in Dallas is not accepted by many Americans today. A late 1970s investigation by a House panel was longer, better resourced, and was a far more rigorous investigation than the Warren Commission, and it concluded, quote, that a conspiracy was probably involved, end quote. Had they known about the incident we're going to talk about today, they might not have used the word probably. Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. This is just in from Dallas. Homicide Chief Captain Will Fritz said today the assassination case against Lee Harvey Oswald is cinched. He said flatly, this is the man that killed President Kennedy. 24-year-old Lee Harvey Oswald. Come on, man. President. No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I'm in the facility. I'm just a passive president. Lee Oswald has been shot. Welcome to the End of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. 
close examination of a phone call made on November 29, 1963, a week after the assassination, between the new president, Lyndon Johnson, and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover reveals something astounding. The two men, though speaking somewhat vague, unmistakably revealed that they knew someone aside from Oswald shot at the president that day. And as far as we know, the meaning and implications of the comments we focused upon in today's podcast received no attention from either the Warren Commission or the later Congressional investigation, and are not noted in other accounts of this call published over the years. In this remarkable conversation, Hoover made it quite clear to LBJ, without ever spelling it out, that the FBI's investigation indicated at least one shot was fired at Kennedy from the front. That is frankly earth-shaking. Even more so when combined with the fact that LBJ and Hoover referred to Kennedy's assassin not as he, meaning Lee Harvey Oswald, already charged with the crime a week earlier, but as they. The world was already being told that all the bullets came from one person firing from a fixed position at the rear, from an upper floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building where Oswald had worked since October, and which the limo had already passed when the shooting started. The Warren Commission would later follow suit, saying in its 1964 report that three shots were fired all from the rear. But when Johnson and Hoover spoke, the government had not divulged a detailed reconstruction of the shots, besides making clear it believed that they all come from Oswald in his workplace. The FBI was still gathering and analyzing evidence. Since both men knew that Johnson's calls were routinely recorded by an official taping system, one can expect that they spoke rather evasively, which is not uncommon for powerful people discussing sensitive matters, and aware that others may at some point have access to the recording. The conversation occurred one week following the assassination, after Oswald had been killed by Jack Ruby, and after the bare bones of the lone gunman theory had been circulating. It began with Johnson telling Hoover that he would probably proceed to appoint an investigative commission, which would become the Warren Commission, chaired by U.S. Chief Justice Earl Warren, and asking Hoover's opinion on some possible commission members. The call continued with Johnson inquiring about details revealed by the investigation so far, including Oswald's movements after the assassination and the background of Oswald's killer, Jack Ruby. Hoover provides a progress report and eventually describes the FBI's latest reconstruction of the shot sequence. Johnson asks about the one that hit Texas Governor John Connolly. Notice in the conversation, they use the word they. LBJ says, were they aiming at the president? Hoover responds, they were aiming directly at the president. LBJ then says, how did they hit Connolly then? Jagger Hoover says, Conley turned to the president when the first shot was fired, and I think in that turning, it was where he got hit. LBJ, if he hadn't turned, he probably wouldn't have got hit? Jagger Hoover, I think that is very likely. LBJ then says, would the president got hit by the second one? Jagger Hoover, no, the president wasn't hit with the second one. LBJ, I say, if Conley hadn't been in the way... J. Edgar Hoover, oh, yes, yes, the president would no doubt have been hit. LBJ, he would have been hit three times? J. Edgar Hoover, in agreement, he would have been hit three times. Wait a minute here, did you catch that in their conversation? By this time, the whole world was aware that Conley had been seated directly in front of Kennedy. Johnson would have seen that for himself, being only a few cars back in the motorcade, and of course having had a hand in the protocol arrangements. There was no chance that Hoover and or Johnson were confused about Connolly's position relative to Kennedy's. They also knew that Oswald supposedly shot at the president from behind. 
So how could Connolly have blocked a bullet intended for Kennedy if it came from behind? He was seated in front of Kennedy. When Johnson asks if Connolly got in the way of a shot meant for Kennedy and Hoover agrees, they are saying the shot that hit Connolly came from the front. Yet throughout the call, the contradiction goes unremarked, and Hoover assures Johnson that the FBI has all it needs to present Oswald as a sole culprit. Lest one think the two men somehow misspoke or misunderstood each other, a minute or two later in the call, Johnson returns to this point. LBJ goes on to say, Well, your conclusion is that he's the one that did it? The man he was after the president? He would have hit him three times, except the governor turned. J. Edgar Hoover, Yes, I think that is correct. Correct? Since they knew Connolly was seated in front of JFK, their belief that he blocked a bullet headed for Kennedy could only mean one thing. They realized that at least one person was shooting at the motorcade from the front. These two powerful men could not have failed to understand what they were saying, yet they have let this astonishing conclusion go unremarked. What is going on here? It's important to know that Johnson either believed in the possibility that a foreign power, most likely the Soviet Union, had been behind the assassination, or at least used that specter to convince others of the right course of action. His purpose was not hard to divine from a careful reading of his private statements and actions. He sought to warn key people that if the public came to believe, rightly or wrongly, that communist conspirators were behind the assassination, there could be a stampede to war. Much better for the assassination to be neatly wrapped up and a domestic individual persuasively made out to be the sole culprit. Avoiding spiring dangers and even nuclear war could depend on it. Combining that with the new public suspicion over why Oswald himself was silenced, well, then it didn't take much for others, including Hoover, to get with a plan. Investigate fast, explore, and blunt any loose ends and be done with it. Medical evidence proved that John Connolly was shot in the back. If he were twisted around, looking at Kennedy when shot, as LBJ and Hoover agreed, then depending on how far he had turned, that shot most likely would have come from the front of the motorcade, and that would not have been Lee Harvey Oswald. Here's the actual call between the new President Lyndon Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover on November 29, 1963. Notice in the first few seconds of the conversation, Lyndon Johnson is deeply concerned about an investigation into the President's murder especially an investigation where he couldn't handpick the investigators. Notice Johnson tells J. Edgar Hoover that he would like to get by with just Hoover's report. Why is this? Because he had Hoover in his back pocket and he could control the outcome of the investigation. Notice Johnson says he wants to get people in there that he can handpick. And then Hoover has the audacity to say that any such investigation other than his would be a three-ring circus. How ironic, because that's exactly what the Warren Commission turned out to be. Yes? T. Edgar Hoover on 2192. Are you familiar with this proposed group that they're trying to put together on this study of your report and other things? Uh, two from the House, two from the Senate, somebody from the court, and, uh, a couple of outsiders. Oh, I haven't heard of that. I, I, I've seen the... Uh, reports on this on the senate investigating committee that they've been talking about yeah well we think if we don't have i want to get by just to, with your file and your report i uh, think it would be very very bad to have a rash of investigations well the only way we can stop them is probably uh, appoint a high level one to evaluate your report yeah and put somebody that's uh, pretty good on it from uh, that i could select uh, 
uh, out of the government uh, and tell the House and Senate uh, not to go ahead with the investigation. Yes, because they get up there and get a bunch of television going, and I thought it'd be bad. It'd be a three-ring circus. Notice the first person that Johnson suggests for this investigative group, which would later become known as the Warren Commission, is Alan Dulles. Alan Dulles hated President Kennedy because Kennedy fired him after the Bay of Pigs debacle. And now Johnson wants him to help investigate the president's murder? What a joke. What do you think about Alan Dulles? Uh, I think he would be a good man. What do you think about John McCloy? Uh, I'm not as enthusiastic about, about McCloy. I knew him back in the Patterson, when Patterson's down here, the secretary thing. He's a good man. But uh, I'm not so certain as to the matter of the publicity that he might seek on it. Mm-hmm. What about General Nordstrom? A uh, good man. Uh, I guess Boggs has started in the House. I thought maybe I might try to get Boggs and Jerry Ford uh, in the House, maybe try to get Dick Russell and uh, maybe Cooper in the Senate. Yes, I think so. I don't know. You know anything, any reason? I'm just talking, man, you can talk like brothers. Yeah, so, by the way, is there any reason uh, any there? I thought Russell could kind of look after uh, the general situation and see that uh, the states uh, and their relationship. Russell would be an excellent man. And I thought Cooper might look after the liberal group. Who's that? Cooper from Kentucky. Oh, yeah, Cooper. So they wouldn't think that he's a pretty judicious fellow. Yeah. But he's a pretty liberal fellow. Yes. I wouldn't want Javits or, no, no. or some of those off on it. Yeah, Javits plays the front page. Cooper, Cooper, Cooper's kind of now goes into a little detail of Lee Harvey Oswald's supposed trip to Mexico in late September of 63, just weeks before the assassination. We will cover this supposed trip to Mexico City in a later podcast. But there was a question whether Lee Harvey Oswald visited Mexico City. Testimony by Sylvia Audio would indicate that he did not. In her statement, she says that Lee Harvey Oswald and two Cuban men visited her during the time that Oswald should have been in Mexico City. Other witnesses corroborate her story, giving further credence to the likelihood of Oswald in Mexico City being an impersonator. The CIA claims they have photos of Oswald at the embassy in Mexico City. You can go online and see for yourself. It is clearly not Lee Harvey Oswald. The CIA never did come forward with alternate pictures from their surveillance. We hope to have this thing wrapped up today, but we probably won't get it before the first of the week. This angle in Mexico is giving us a great deal of trouble. I have this man, Oswald, getting $6,500 uh, from the Cuban embassy uh, and then coming back to this country with it. Uh, they, we, we're not able to prove uh, that fact. But the information was that he was there on the 18th of September in Mexico City, and we, have, we are able to prove conclusively he was in New Orleans that day. 
Now, then they moved, they changed the date. The story came in changing the date to the 28th of September. And he was in Mexico City on the 28th. Now, the Mexican police have again arrested this woman, Duran, who's a member of the, uh, the uh, Cuban embassy. And we'll hold her for two or three more days. And we've got to confront her with the original informant who saw the money pass, so he says. And we're also going to put the lie detector test on him. Meantime, of course, Castro's hollering his head off. Can you pay attention to those lie detector tests? I, I would not uh, pay 100% uh, attention to them. All that they are is a psychological uh, asset in, a, in an investigation. I wouldn't want to be a part to sending a man to the chair on a lie detector. Uh, they, uh, for instance, we have found many cases where, where we've used them and in a bank where there's been embezzlement, and a person will confess before the lie detector test is finished. They're more or less fearful of the fact that the lie detector test will show them guilty. Psychologically, uh, there's that advantage because it's a misnomer to call it a lie detector because what it really is, it's the evaluation of the chart that is made by this machine. Uh, and that evaluation is made by a human being. And any human being can uh, be apt to make a wrong interpretation. So I would not myself go on that alone. If on the other hand, in the, if this Oswald had lived and had taken the, uh, the lie detector test and it had shown definitely uh, that he had done these various things together with the evidence that we very definitely have, uh, they, it would have uh, just added that, that much more strength to it. There's no question, but the T is the man. Now, the fingerprints and things that we have. The conversation then turns to Jack Ruby. I find it interesting that Hoover almost suggests that the Dallas police let Ruby kill Oswald. As he says, when the Dallas police saw Ruby with a gun in the basement moving towards Oswald, they did nothing to stop it. This uh, fellow, uh, uh, Rubenstein down there, uh, he is offered to take the lie detector test but his lawyer has got to be cross-consulted first, and I doubt whether the lawyer will allow him. He's one of these criminal lawyers from the West Coast, and somewhat like a Everett Bennett Williams type, and almost as much of a shyster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you got any uh, any relationship between the two here? Uh, between uh, uh, Rubenstein? Yeah. No, at the present time, we have not. There was a story down there that... Was uh, he ever in his bar and stuff like that? There was that? a story that this fellow had been in this nightclub, that he, this tease joint that he has, but that has not been able to be confirmed. Now, uh, this fellow Rubenstein is a, is a very shady character, has a bad record, street brawler, fighter, and that sort of thing. And uh, in the place in Dallas, if a fellow came in there and couldn't pay his bill completely, Rubenstein would beat the very devil out of him and throw him out of the place. He was that kind of a fella. He didn't drink, didn't smoke, boasted about that. He would—he is what I would put in the category, one of his egomaniacs. He likes to be in the limelight. He knew all the police uh, in that white light district where the joints are down there. And he also uh, let them come in, see the show, get food, and get liquor and so forth. That's how I think he got into police headquarters. Uh, because... Uh, they accepted him as kind of a police character hanging around police headquarters. And for that reason, raised no, no question. Of course, they, they never made any moves as the pictures show, even when they saw him approaching this, this fellow and got up right to him and pressed his pistol against, uh, against Oswald's stomach. Uh, uh, 
that neither of the police officers on either side made any move to push him away or to grab him. It wasn't until after the gun was fired that they then moved. Now, of course, that, that is not the highest degree of efficiency, so to say. Secondly, the chief of police admits that he uh, moved him in the morning uh, as a convenience and at the request of the motion picture people who wanted to have daylight. He should have moved him at night, but he didn't. And, uh, I mean, it, uh, those derelictions in that phase. But so far as tying Rubenstein and Oswald together, we haven't as yet done so. There have been a number of stories come in. Uh, we've, tried, we've, we've tried Oswald into the uh, Civil Liberties Union in New York, membership into that, and then, of course, into this uh, thing, uh, this, to this Cuban Fair Play Commission, uh, committee, which, is, which was pro-Castro and dominated by communism and financed uh, to some extent by the Castro government. Now is where the conversation really gets interesting. Keep in mind at this point, Hoover and Johnson had no idea that they would have to come up with the magic bullet theory to account for seven wounds in two men by two bullets. They had no idea at this point that a shot missed the car completely and ricocheted off the curb and hit bystander James Tague. So Hoover's explanation of the shots and the damage that they caused is very inaccurate here. This is also where the shooters are described as they, not he, by both Johnson and Hoover, several times during the portion of this conversation. I also find it comical that he said three shots were fired in three seconds at one point during the conversation. Keep in mind, they claimed Oswald used a bolt-action Mamaco Carcano rifle, which takes a minimum of 2.3 seconds to recoil after each shot. Three shots in three seconds? That really is an impossibility. How many shots were fired? Three. Any of them fired at me? I know. All three at the present. All three at the present, and we have them. Uh, two of the shots fired at the president were splinted, uh, but they had characteristics on them so that our ballistic expert was able to prove that they were fired by this gun. Uh, the third shot, which, uh, which hit the president, he was hit by the first and the third. The second shot hit the governor. The third shot is a, completely, is a complete bullet that wasn't shattered, and that rolled out of the president's head. I tore a large part of the president's head off. And uh, in trying to massage his heart at the, on the, at the hospital, on the way to the hospital, they uh, apparently uh, loosened that and it, it fell onto the, the stretcher. And we recovered that. And we have that. And we have the gun here also. Were they aiming the president? They were aiming directly at the president. There's no question about that. This, this telescopic lens, which I've looked through, it brings a person as close to you as if they were sitting right beside you. And we also have tested the fact that you could fire those three shots that were fired uh, within three seconds. Were they aiming to the president? They were aiming directly at the president. Were they aiming to the president? They were aiming directly at the president. They, they, they. Hmm. So next comes the part in the conversation between Hoover and Johnson where Johnson asks how Governor Conley was hit. And Hoover explains that Conley was hit because he turned in the seat. And he says if he hadn't turned in the seat, he probably wouldn't have been hit. Once again, keep in mind, Conley was seated in front of Kennedy. So if he turned and blocked a bullet, that would have meant the shot come from the front. Hoover trips all over himself in this conversation. 
He either didn't know the cover story, or he didn't know full details of the cover story yet. Oh, and would someone tell Jay Edgar that the gun and the bullets were found on the 6th floor, not the 5th floor? Hey, how did it happen? They hit Connolly. Uh, Connolly, turned, Connolly turned to the president at the, when the first shot was fired. And I think in that, in that turning, it was where he got hit. If he hadn't turned, he probably wouldn't have got hit. I think that's very likely. When the president got hit the second one? Uh, no, no, the president wasn't hit with the second one. At the, I'll see if, he, if Connolly had been in his way. Oh, oh yes, yes. Uh, the president, no doubt, would have been hit. He'd been hit three times. He'd been hit three times. You know, on the fifth floor of that building where we found the gun and the wrapping paper in which the gun was uh, wrapped, has been wrapped, and upon which we find the full fingerprints of this man Oswald, uh, we, uh, on that floor, we found the three empty shells that had been fired, and one shell that had not been fired. In other words, there were four shells, four shells apparently, and he had, he had fired three, but didn't fire the fourth one. He then threw the gun aside and came down, and at the, at the entrance of the building, he was stopped by a police officer, and some uh, worker, some manager in the building, told the police officer, well, he's all right, he works for you, he can, uh, you needn't hold him. So they let him go. That's how he got out. Mm. And then he got on a bus, the bus driver has identified him, and went out to his home, and uh, got hold of a jacket that he wanted for some purpose, and came back downtown, walking downtown, and uh, the uh, police officer who was killed stopped him, uh, not knowing who he was, and not uh, knowing whether he was the man, but they were uh, just on suspicion, and he fired, of course, and killed the police officer. Then he walked uh, walked you can, about... You can prove that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we can prove that. Then he walked about another uh, another two blocks and went to the theater, and the woman at the theater window selling the ticket, she was so suspicious, uh, the way he was acting, and she said he was carrying a gun. He had a revolver at that time, which he, with which he had killed the police officer. Uh, the, he went into the theater, and then she notified the police, and the police and our man down there went in there and located this particular man. We had quite a struggle with him. He fought like a regular line, and he had to be subdued, of course, and was then brought out and, of course, taken to the police uh, headquarters. But uh, he, he apparently... Uh, had come down uh, the five flights of steps, uh, stairway from the fifth floor. Uh, so far as we found out, the elevator was not used, although he could have used it, but nobody remembers whether it was or whether it wasn't. In the next part of the conversation, Hoover describes Marina Oswald as being hostile. Marina Oswald was anything but hostile after the assassination. She was scared to death. They had threatened to deport her back to Russia, so she would do and say whatever they wanted. Now, there's one angle of this thing that I'm hopeful to get some word on today. Uh, this woman, his wife, has been very hostile. She would not cooperate. She speaks Russian and Russian only. She did say to us yesterday down there that if we could give her assurance that she would be allowed to remain in this country, she uh, might cooperate. I told our agents down there to give her that assurance that she could stay in this country. I sent a Russian-speaking agent into Dallas last night to interview her. So that uh, we'll, we're, we've got her now, and uh, whether she knows anything or talks anything, I don't, I, I cause don't know. The next part of the conversation, Johnson asked Hoover exactly where Oswald worked in the school book depository building. Hoover said that Oswald didn't work on any particular floor, which is not true. The orders that Oswald filled were mostly on behalf of Scott Forsman, 
The Scott Forsman books were all on the first floor and the sixth floor, so that's where Oswald spent most of his time. Where did he work in the building? On the same floor? He had access on all floors. But where was his office? Uh, well, he didn't have any particular office. Uh, he would, uh, orders came in for certain books, and some books would be on the first floor, second floor, third floor, and so forth. But he didn't, he didn't have any particular place he stationed? No, he had no, he had no particular place that he was stationed at all. He was just a general packer of uh, uh, the uh, requisitions that came in for school books from the, from the Dallas schools there. And uh, therefore he had access, perfectly proper access, to the fifth floor and to the sixth floor. Usually most of the employees were down on lower floors. Did anybody hear anybody see him on the fifth floor? Uh, yes, he was seen on the fifth floor by one of the workmen there before the, uh, the assassination took place. He was seen there. So that, that means got a, Did you get a picture of him shooting? No, oh, no. There was no picture taken of him shooting. Well, what was this picture that fellow sold for $25? That was a picture taken of the parade and showing Mrs. Kennedy uh, uh, climbing out of the back seat. Next, Hoover goes on to criticize the security arrangements of the motorcade, which I do agree with. Too bad Hoover wasn't concerned before the trip to Dallas. And then he goes on to talk about the need for a bulletproof car and says that he has one that he rides around in. So the head of the FBI should ride around in a bulletproof car, but not the President of the United States? Makes a lot of sense. You see, there was no Secret Service man standing on the back of the car. Uh, usually this, the, the presidential car in the past has had uh, steps on the back next to the bumpers, and they've usually been one on either side standing on those steps at the, at the back bumper. Uh, whether the president uh, uh, asked that that not be done, we don't know. Uh, and the bubble top was not up, but the bubble top wasn't worth a damn anyway because it made entirely a, a, a plastic. And uh, much to my surprise, the Secret Service do not have any armored cars. Do you have, do you have a, a bulletproof car? Oh, yes, I do. Yes, you I think do. I ought to have one? I think you most certainly should have one. Most certainly should. Uh, because... Uh, I went here, I, we have one in New York, we use it for, for different purposes. I use it here for myself, and if we have any raids to make or have to surround a place where anybody's uh, hidden in, uh, we, we use a, the bulletproof car on that. Uh, because you can bulletproof the entire car, including the glass. But it, it means that the top has to remain up. You could never let the top down. It's a regular limiting type. And it looks exactly like any other car, but I do think you ought to have a bulletproof car. And, uh, but that's what I was surprised the other day when I made inquiry. All that I understand the Secret Service has had, has had two cars with metal plates underneath the car uh, to take care of a hand grenade or a bomb that might be thrown out and rolled along the street. Well, of course, we don't do those things in this country. In Europe, that's the way they, they, they assassinate the heads of state are with bombs. They've been after General de Gaulle, you know, with that sort of thing. But uh, in this country, all of our assassinations have been with guns. And uh, for that reason, uh, uh, I think uh, very definitely I was very much surprised when I learned that this bubble top thing was not uh, bulletproof in any respect and that the plastic uh, the top to it was down. Of course, the president had insisted upon that so that he could stand up and wave to the crowd. Now, it, it, uh, it seems to me that the president ought to always be in a bulletproof car. Uh, it, it certainly would prevent anything like this ever happening again. Uh, it doesn't mean you could have a thousand Secret Service men on guard 
and still the sniper can snipe you from up in the window uh, if you are exposed, like the president was. But he, but he can't do it if you have a have a, a solid top a bulletproof top to it, as it should be. Then the conversation gets real sentimental. As Johnson tells Hoover, he's not only the head of the FBI, but he's his buddy and his close personal friend. What a couple of crooks. Well, I'm going to take every precaution I can, and I, I, want, I, want, to. I want to talk to you, and I wish you'd put down your thoughts on that a little bit, because uh, you're, you're more than the head of the Federal Bureau, as far as I'm concerned. You're my brother and personal friend, well, and you have been for 25, 30 years. Well, so, I, so you just, uh, I got more confidence in your judgment than anybody in town, so you just put on some of the things you think ought to happen, and I won't involve your court here, get you in jurisdictional disputes or anything, yeah. but I... I'd like to at least advocate him as my opinion. I'll be very glad to indeed. Uh, I certainly appreciate your confidence. Well, thank you. Thank you. Fine. Next week on The End of Innocence, the JFK assassination, an echo from the past may corroborate the new JFK bullet claim. It seems FBI Director Hoover cooperated in 1963 what Secret Service agent Paul Landis is now saying about the Kennedy assassination bullet discovery. We'll see you next week. <laughs>